At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. The history of Ybor City is entwined with the making of the Cuban cigar. Today, just a handful of factories remain, and all but one are used for something other than cigar making. But a hundred years ago, at the height of the cigar industry, there were more than 200 factories. Historian Sarah McNamara says the industry powered the local economy and helped transform Tampa from what was a settlement of sweaty confederates into a thriving city. On this episode, we'll talk with McNamara, an assistant professor of history at Texas A&M University, about her book Ybor City, Crucible of the Latina South, and the immigrant cigar factories that shaped the economy of Tampa. McNamara, whose family is from Ybor, explains how the factory workers created a unique labor movement, and she tells the story of Latinas who are leaders in the push for social and economic justice. But first, a note. This conversation was recorded prior to a shooting that took place on Ybor's 7th Avenue over the weekend. Two people were killed and 16 others were injured. Sarah, welcome back to Florida Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Matthew. So in this book you write, I'm quoting here, in Ybor City and Tampa, political networks and cultural identities connected the United States, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Central and South America, and Europe. Over three generations, these cross-border exchanges critically influenced the physical shape of Ybor and Tampa, as well as the political and social consciousness of the people within these places. And it all starts with tobacco. So How did cigar making become such a huge economic force in Florida and how did Tampa become the focal point for the cigar industry? So the history of cigar making in the state of Florida is intrinsically connected to Cuba and its fight for independence from Spain, which was its colonial overlord until 1898. Between the 1860s until 1898, Cuba underwent three different movements for independence. And in the process of independence and revolution making, one thing that happens is that economies become unstable. So manufacturers basically looked for a place where they could continue to make money. And that place initially becomes Key West. Key West, however, is incredibly close to the island of Cuba the manufacturers experienced what they believed was instability. They wanted to have increasing control over their workforce. So one manufacturer, Vicente Martinez Ibor, who Ibor City is named after, he is the first one to start looking for another location. He begins by looking at Galveston. He also looks at different areas in Alabama, but decides on Tampa. Yeah, one thing I found interesting was the description of the environment is basically you're living in a humidor in Tampa, right? So that's exactly. going to keep the cigars the right condition before they're sold. Exactly, right? Because when we're thinking about Key West, it's both close just physically, but that also means that moving things like raw tobacco is rather easy. Moving workers is rather easy. You had to to be able to speak Spanish to operate in that environment. So it was a kind of work in the United States where workers had a lot of control. So as Ebor is looking for a place where this could thrive, Tampa is kind of what brings it together. It is a 
active humidor. It is still connected to Cuba. The plant transportation system connects both with railway throughout the state of Florida and beyond it and connects to the island of Cuba because And, it was and you're also, talking about Henry Plant. Yes, Henry yeah. B. Plant, right? Henry B. Plant had built an infrastructural system. So that was already there for him. Just a kind of stat here. You write in the book that Tampa went from a settlement of some 720 yeah. people in 1880 to a city of more than 15,000 by 1900. We kind of think of Florida as obviously it's constantly growing state, but we think about the sort of big population growth we've seen in the last couple of years. And it's interesting reflecting on that and thinking about Tampa at the turn of last century, right? I mean, it's Growth exactly. is something that kind of w- was happening then, too, in a pretty massive way. Exactly. And it completely remade the city of Tampa. The way that I describe it in the book is that it was a settlement of sweaty Confederates, that there weren't many people who were living in the city of Tampa. And within that period of time, there is a huge increase in the population, but the population that's here is also predominantly immigrant. And the majority are people from Cuba, and then those from Spain and Italy follow thereafter. And that's what creates Ybor City. So you have a really interesting environment. You have a place in the middle of the Jim Crow South. As the Jim Crow South is hardening Jim Crow laws, moving from black codes to Jim Crowism, you have an immigrant population with an unbelievable amount of economic power because the Tampa economy doesn't operate without them. And the important thing is that they know it. So they're willing to walk off the job. They're willing to sustain strikes for long periods of time. They're willing to go back to Cuba if they need to wait things out. And they see Tampa not only as a place to make money, but they see Tampa as a place where they can live the revolutionary ideas, where they can help support the Cuba that they want to see Cuba become from the United States in a way that they may be very vulnerable within on the island itself. So they do things like give one day week pay to support the revolution and the independence movement. They are in constant conversation with people who are in New York, right? The intellectual class. Mm -hmm. The intellectual class of Cuba goes to New York and some goes to um, Western Europe. So they're a part of the movement of a press. So they are generating these ideas. But there are revolutionary thinkers from socialist to communist to anarchist to anarcho-syndicalist, and they are driven by this immigrant population in Tampa. And what's surrounding it is a group of people who are seeking to sustain power coming out of a civil war-based environment and working to recreate something that was very similar to that through legal structures in the U.S. So it's quite the dramatic moment around the turn of the century. And then just another kind of indication that I thought was interesting of the the economic power of Ybor City and Mm -hmm. the cigar industry is the fact that the city of Tampa basically forcibly amalgamated Ybor City because they wanted access to the resources so they could build up the rest of Tampa, essentially. No, absolutely. That was one of the documents that I went searching for for a long period of time. And there's a copy of it at the Tampa Bay History Center here in downtown Tampa. The city of Tampa forcibly annexes Ybor City because they want to include the area in right its tax base. They want access to that revenue. But prior to that happening, when I said that Ybor City was created as a place of control, Vicente Martinez Ybor, the manufacturer who the city gets its namesake from, he sees that the workers in Ybor are no more controlled here in Tampa than they were in Key West. And he seeks help from 
the Tampa Police Department, including vigilante activism from those who were working beyond that system, either through the KKK or through Citizens Committee channels. And he asked them to forcibly police Tampa. What if you talk a little bit about trade unions and the role that Luisa Moreno played in Ybor City and the cigar industry? Absolutely. So Luisa Moreno is one of my favorite stories or people who I happen to stumble upon. So Luisa Moreno, she is a labor activist from Guatemala. She was born into an elite family and she was educated in the United States. She spoke Spanish and English fluently. She goes on to Mexico City, where she becomes involved in, you know, the Frida Kahlo world, and she becomes a poet, and then goes to New York City, where she gets her first taste of labor activism. There she works as a seamstress, and she is working there in Spanish Harlem, and she organizes the first Latina union. And she is so talented that the American Federation of Labor, they need a woman organizer to come to Florida in the 1930s for a specific reason. By the 1930s, the Cuban cigar industry had begun to decline as a result of the Great Depression. And one thing that manufacturers did is that they fired in mass Latino artisans and they hired in their place Latino workers, some of whom were talented artisans as well, but manufacturers paid them about half the price for the same amount of work. Hmm. And so all of a sudden, the primary people who were in unions were women, and they needed a woman to organize them. And Luisa Moreno is the answer to that question. Moreno comes to Tampa as a very young and green organizer. And the way that I talk about her in the book is it's really in Tampa where she learns how to be the organizer she wishes to be. In Tampa, she realizes that it doesn't matter how benevolent or how well-intentioned her idea as a labor unionist is, that she can help create the best possible contract and it can be negotiated away due to politics and political connections and manufacturers. And she begins to talk about that one thing that is essential is uniting political activism with labor unionism. And without that conjoined awareness, that's not possible. And she learns this from women and from Latinas and Latinos in Ybor City who were doing this work for a long time. And it becomes an underpinning of how she sees labor activism. She goes on to be one of the founding members of the United Cannery Packing House Workers of America Union. And that union becomes one of the most ambitious in the United States that both seeks to shift labor law. And they're quite successful through the 40s. You talked a little bit about the, the Great Depression as being sort of like the death knell for the cigar industry was, yes. in Tampa. But there's also automation, right? And it, it strikes me that there are some parallels with some of the kind of quandaries that some industries are facing today. Not just that, but also yeah. the role of unions and trying to get better working conditions for the folks who are, who are doing the work. One great quotation that actually didn't make it in the book. I was looking through the... CMIU records of the AFL at the University of Maryland, the special collections of the union is there. And there was this great quotation from the head of the CMIU that said, mechanization is like a boil on my back. I'll never be able to reach it. And it's too far gone. And that happened around the late 1930s. So it was already in the 1930s, which if we're thinking about it, you could imagine that there'd be a world where it could turn around. But union organizers and manufacturers themselves are saying, you know, this is too far gone at this point. 
The question now is how do you create an equitable pay structure and how do you get recognition for kinds of labor and how do we maintain artisanship in the places where we can. The Great Depression changed both the ability to pay for artisan work as well as what people could afford to buy. The Great Depression made it difficult to purchase high-priced cigars. And following World War I, there was also an increasing popularity through the 1920s of cigarettes. Mm -hmm. So you have a product that is expensive, that isn't seen as fashionable, and there's a global economic crisis. And all of those things intersect to create a massive problem for the Cuban cigar industry by 1929 that really solidifies by 1931. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking with historian Sarah McNamara. Her book, Ybor City, Crucible of the Latina South, looks at immigrant cigar factories that shaped Tampa's economy and the Latinas in Ybor City who are leaders in the labor movement of their time. The conversation continues after the break. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Let's get back to the conversation with historian Sarah McNamara about her book, Ybor City, Crucible of the Latina South. It was recorded last month before a weekend shooting incident in the neighborhood. We're talking about the Cuban cigar factories and the immigrant workers who shaped the economy of Tampa and the Latina leaders in the labor movement of that era. We also talk about her own family's deep connections to Ybor City and the future of a place that's right now being redefined with an influx of new people and redevelopment. What about the role of cigar workers and particularly women in the industry in speaking out against fascism in the 1930s? And yes. you, you talk about one particular march in Ybor City in Tampa, but what was it about this particular moment in time and this group of people that connected them with the anti-fascist movement of that era? So the anti-fascist movement emerged as a result of the Spanish Civil War, which if listeners aren't familiar, I oftentimes talk about it with my students in History 101 as the precursor, the dress rehearsal to World War II, that you have many of the same forces that are aligned and the same issues that are at play. But it is taking part within Spain and the Spanish Republic. In the city of Tampa, the anti-fascist movement emerges, and there are organizations that are created. La Gaceta, the local newspaper, consistently runs a section of the newspaper that talks about the fight abroad. But one of the important components is that they connect it to a fight at home. They see fascism as something that is growing in Spain and growing in other areas of the world, but also something that already exists within the city of Tampa. They see things like violence and vigilantism towards labor unionism or speaking out in terms of leftist politics as being forms of fascism. So in 1937, Latinas, these women who are working in the cigar factories, 5,000 of them march from Ybor City to the front steps of the city of Tampa. And when they get to the front steps of the city of Tampa, they demand of the mayor that they send the petition to Washington demanding that the U.S. become involved in the Spanish Civil War. They're not only advocating for specific foreign policies, but they're advocating for fair work for their husbands, brothers, and uncles. They're advocating for what it means to have a fair and living wage. They're talking about the role of violence and the role of fear that exists when you speak out. But women played a particularly interesting role. And as a historian, I don't like to exist in the world of hypotheticals, but 
based on the evidence we have and the reality that by 1935, the ACLU had named Tampa one of the most dangerous places in the U.S. South due to the high proportion of people who were lynched here, not just on the basis of the color of their skin, but also due to their ideas. And if you joined a political party that sought to challenge things like the white municipal party, that they were challenging this kind of control and saying that we too are here. We're residents. Many were citizens, although some were not. But they're talking about human dignity, respect, and representation. You mentioned La Gaceta, and that has a connection with another thing I wanted to ask you about. This is one of the aspects of okay. life in the cigar industry that I found quite fascinating. And you highlight the role of the lector, and they would sort of provide entertainment and news for the cigar factory. Can yes. you just kind of explain what that is and why they were so important? The lector was such an interesting institution. The lector is an institution that exists in Cuban cigar factories on the island of Cuba as well. So elector is a person who is hired by the cigar workers themselves. And so they're also paid by the cigar workers. And they would sit on this elevated platform on the main production floor, and they would read news from across the world. Oftentimes, they were people who were bi or multilingual. They could translate news to people. And they kept them informed of international movements as well as local news. And in doing that, it created a workforce that was unbelievably engaged and well-informed. So people spent their work day listening to this information. They would also select plays and novels that would be read. So you had a workforce that may have never gone to work beyond like third grade, if even that. But you had people who knew who Tolstoy was. You had people who knew great works of opera. You had people who were engaged in politics beyond their backyard, as well as those who were ardently aware of what was going on around them. So it was really a place where the lector was the informer, but it was the people who applied those ideas and how they influenced those around them. And the founder of La Gazzetta was a lector himself, yes, right? Yes, Victoriano mm. Mantega. Yes. So the original family still owns La Gazzetta here in the Tampa Bay area. I wanted to ask about politics. And when you write about the Henry Wallace campaign, the reception mm. that he got from Ybor City residents, particularly during his presidential bid in 1948, yeah. What does that tell you about how political leaders in the United States were beginning to view Latino and Latina voters and their power at the ballot box? The 1946 Wallace campaign is incredibly important for those in Ybor City. Henry Wallace is the first presidential candidate to come to Ybor City and to go meet workers and to say, I can be your president too. And people in Ybor City are unbelievably receptive to that. When we look at the history of U.S. politics and think about the Henry Wallace campaign, many people think of him right as an aberration, as you know, the leftist in the midst of this movement in the 1940s. But the Wallace campaign really connected people in Ybor City who had been members of the Communist Party, who had been members of the Socialist Party, as a way to enter U.S. politics in a form that they recognized. There were principles that Wallace discussed that resonated with them from his ideas of anti-capitalism and regulation to the um, support of unionism. But at the end of the day, he's the one who came to the factories. And that's what made a huge difference. There were also younger Latinas and Latinos who worked for his campaign here in the Tampa area. And one of the things that's notable is Henry Wallace had a hell of a time 
visiting throughout the South. He was consistently had things like tomatoes lobbed at him. He was threatened outwardly. And in Tampa, there are hundreds of people who go to see him in downtown with an integrated audience. And they listen to him. There is no riot. There is no pushback. There was certainly people who, you know, said, don't go to this, that he's Mm -hmm. a communist, (laughs) especially those who were traditional power holders in Tampa. But he gets a significant portion of the vote here. He gets a higher proportion of the vote in the city of Tampa than he does if you're looking at a place like New York City. And he recognized the power of a Latino vote. He recognized that African-Americans could be mobilized. And he preached openly about things like anti-Semitism. And that was something that was attractive to Latinos in Tampa and went on. By the 1950s, a descendant of Ybor is elected mayor, city of Tampa, Nick Nuccio. And from that point, the city of Tampa has only had one Republican elected mayor since that date. In 1955, Fidel Castro spends a month (laughs) in Ybor City trying to drum up support for his cause, which is overthrowing the Batista regime in Cuba. But he was relatively unknown at the time, and he met with a pretty lukewarm reception in Ybor City. Mm -hmm. Why was that? There's one historian named Ada Ferrer, who I quote in the book, and she makes the point that one of our biggest mistakes when seeking to understand the Cuban Revolution is to see it through our presentist vision of Fidel Castro as the larger-than-life figure that he came to be. Fidel Castro is another person who is leading a revolution at the time, a compelling one. He's in Tampa after his imprisonment following the um, siege on the Moncada barracks, which is a very dramatic moment. That is a part of what he is preaching with the 26th of July movement as he's moving throughout Ybor City. And there were people who aligned with the 26th of July movement in the city of Tampa and were active in it. It did consistently have lower membership than other political movements. Those who were most ardently dedicated to it tended to be Cuban-Americans who were in Tampa who had immigrated more recently than the majority of those who came to Tampa between the 1880s and the 1920s. So it's a different population. Fidel Castro is kind of wandering throughout the community. He's trying to find himself. There's this moment where he runs a fundraiser and he can't find a place to hold it because none of the mutual aid societies will house him. But he gives a speech where he is in this room and TV crews are there and it's not completely packed as he expected. And he says all of these empty chairs are filled with the ghost of Jose Marti. And there are people who are really frustrated with the lack of political engagement this is getting. Victoriano Mantega, for example, from La Gaceta, is really railing the community, saying, like, you all need to come out. Like, this is important. You know, the way that he did with the movement for anti-fascism, but the reaction is different. There is the fear of anti-leftism and the power that things like the House and American Activities Committee had on the community. There's the reality of McCarthyism. But there's also the portion that the community had changed. We are about, depending on the family, two to three generations in by the time that we get to the 1950s. The original immigrant generation is still there, but the things that they care about are different. They're hoping that their kids will finish high school. They're hoping that their kids will get jobs. Some are hoping that they'll even go to college. The Cuban cigar industry that once allowed the community to be completely independent and powerful is different, so they have to find power in a different way. 
So that trend I spoke about earlier where people gave one day week of pay for the independence movement, which they also did for the anti-fascist movement, they don't do for the revolution. Once Castro is successful in 1959, there's famously this parade through Tampa where a thousand cars jammed the street and they're riding and celebrating and there's people in Tampa who remember it. But while the community supported the politics of it and saw themselves in stark contrast to refugees who went to Miami, they didn't care in the same way, Hmm. by and large, as a community as a whole, the way that they cared about political movements prior. There's quite a lot in this book that has a direct connection to your family and your forebears. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about what this book means to you personally. I was talking to a working group that I'm part of the other day, and I said, I was like, I know that my job is to write books, but I wonder if I will ever write another book that has as much heart in it the way this one does, because it's unique to me in that way. My family is from Ybor City, specifically on my mom's side, and I grew up inundated with the culture of Ybor. I write in the book that my grandmother wanted to be sure that my sister and I knew and understood what it meant to be of and from Ybor City, and that it was a form of Latinidad that we carried with us, and we do. The last part of your book deals with urban renewal and what that means for Ybor City, for better or worse. What do you think the next chapter is for Ybor City? I think Ybor City is in the midst of massive redefinition right now. And I hope that it's also a moment that it remembers what it was. Ybor City has more development in the district than it ever has or that I can ever remember it being. When I was a child, I kind of remembered Ybor City as being a kind of a crusty place where there wasn't much going on. And then it became a bar district and really active. And then nothing happened for a long time. And now a lot is. The important thing for us to remember about Ybor is that it's had many lives. There is the cigar industry version of Ybor City. And then by the 1960s, it becomes a place that is a black community. Once historic black communities in Tampa have been raised and people have been displaced, it becomes an area for affordable housing. By the 1980s, it becomes a queer district, and it also becomes a district for artists and for those who are seeking a haven, again, because of its affordability. Right now, Tampa is going through so much change. I don't know if Ybor City is still that affordable district, but it is still a district full of interest and difference and oddities, which I think is what attracts people there as much as the Cuban sandwiches, (laughs) that you can walk through Ybor City and see young people who are working to develop themselves as artists. You can walk through Ybor City and see an older family, right, a group of abuelitas who are going to dinner or lunch at the Columbia. You see tourists who want to learn about what it is. And increasingly, you're just seeing people going down there to hang out, which I think is exciting. I don't know what it means for the future of Ybor, but I hope that Ybor can, in some ways, retain the grit and the authenticity that it was, right? A place where radicalism can be talked about, a place where people are excited, a place where people can meet each other from a wide variety of backgrounds. And from just walking down the street, I think that's still there. I've been doing a lot of different events connected to the book, and the one that has really stood out to me the most was this one called Radicals and Revolutionaries. And it was at a bar in Ebor, and I was talking about the history of Ebor through three different women. And the room was completely jam-packed. We thought 40 people were coming and more than 160 people were there. So I think the ethos and the politics of Ebor still live, but 
have to figure out a way to make sure it can survive without it being priced out. We've been speaking with Sarah McNamara, Assistant Professor of History at Texas A&M University. We've been talking about her book, Ybor City, Crucible of the Latina South. Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That's our show for this week. Find us on social media, search for Florida Matters, or listen to archived episodes on our website, wusf.org. And join us again next week as Floridians wrestle with a troubled insurance market in a hurricane-prone state. We'll visit Babcock Ranch, a community designed to be resilient in the face of damaging storms. Our producer is Steve Newborn. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.